Chapter forty one of That Affair Next Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you today by John Larson in Minnesota. That Affair Next Door by Anna K. Green. Chapter forty one. Secret History. It was hours before I found myself able to realize that the scene I had just witnessed had a deeper and much more dreadful significance than appeared to the general eye, and that Ruth Oliver, in her desperate interruption of these treacherous nuptials, had not only made good her prior claim to Randolph Stone as her husband, but had pointed him out to all the world as the villainous author of that crime which for so long a time had occupied my own and the public's attention. Thinking that you may find the same difficulty in grasping this terrible fact, and being anxious to save you from the suspense under which I myself labored for so many hours, I here subjoin a written statement made by this woman some weeks later, in which the whole mystery is explained. It is signed Olive Randolph, the name to which she evidently feels herself best entitled. The man known in New York City as Randolph Stone was first seen by me in Michigan five years ago. His name then was John Randolph, and how he has since come to add to this further appellation of Stone, I must leave to himself to explain. I was born in Michigan myself, until my eighteenth year I lived with my father, who was a widower without any other child in a little low cottage amid the sand mounds that border the eastern side of the lake. I was not pretty, but every man who passed me on the beach or in the streets of the little town where we went to market and to church stopped to look at me, and this I noticed, and from this perhaps my unhappiness arose. For before I was old enough to know the difference between poverty and riches, I began to lose all interest in my simple home duties, and to cast longing looks at the great school building where girls like myself learned to speak like ladies and play the piano. Yet these ambitious promptings might have come to nothing if I had never met him. I might have settled down in my own sphere and lived a useful if unsatisfied life, like my mother and my mother's mother before her. But, Fate had reserved me for wretchedness, and one day, just as I was on the verge of my eighteenth year, I saw John Randolph. I was coming out of church when our eyes first met, and I noticed after the first shock my simple heart received from his handsome face and elegant appearance, that he was surveying me with that strange look of admiration I had seen before on so many faces, and the joy this gave me and the certainty which came with it of my seeing him again made that moment quite unlike any other in my whole life, and was the beginning of that passion which has undone me, ruined him, and brought death and sorrow to many others of more worth than either of us. He was not a resident of the town, but a passing visitor, and his intention had been, as he has since told me, to leave the place on the following day. But the dart which had pierced my breast had not glanced entirely aside from his, and he remained, as he declared, to see what there was in this little country girl's face to make it so unforgettable. 
We met first on the beach, and afterwards under the strip of pines which separate our cottage from the sand mounds, and though I have no reason to believe he came to these interviews with any honest purpose or deep sincerity of feeling, it is certain he exerted all his powers to make them memorable to me, and that, in doing so, he awoke some of the fire in his own breast, which he took such wicked pleasure in arousing in mine. In fact, he soon showed that this was so, for I could take no step from the house without encountering him, and the one indelible impression remaining to me from those days is the expression his face wore, as one sunny afternoon he laid my hand on his arm and drew me away to have a look at the lake booming on the beach below us. There was no love in it as I understand love now, but the passion which informed it almost amounted to intoxication. And if such a passion can be understood between a man already cultivated, and a girl who hardly knew how to read, it may in a measure account for what followed. My father, who was no fool, and who saw the selfish quality in this attractive lover of mine, was alarmed by our growing intimacy. Taking an opportunity when we were both in a more sensible mood than common, he put the case before Mr. Randolph in a very decided way. He told him that either he must marry me at once, or quit seeing me altogether. No delay was to be considered, and no compromise allowed. As my father was a man with whom no one ever disputed, John Randolph prepared to leave the town, declaring that he could marry no one at that stage of his career. But before he could carry out his intention, the old intoxication returned, and he came back in a fever of love and impatience to marry me. Had I been older or more experienced in the ways of the world, I would have known that such passion as this evinced was short-lived, that there is no witchery in a smile lasting enough to make men like him forget the lack of social graces to which they are accustomed. But I was mad with happiness, and was unconscious of any cloud lowering upon our future, till the day of our first separation came when an event occurred which showed me what I might expect if I could not speedily raise myself to his level. We were out walking, and we met a lady who had known Mr. Randolph elsewhere. She was well-dressed, which I was not, though I had not realized it till I saw how attractive she looked in quiet colors, and with only a simple ribbon on her hat, and she had, besides, a way of speaking which made my tones sound harsh, and robbed me of that feeling of superiority with which I had hitherto regarded all the girls of my acquaintance. But it was not her possession of these advantages, keenly as I felt them, which awakened me to the sense of my position. It was the surprise she showed, a surprise the source of which was not to be mistaken, when he introduced me to her as his wife, and though she recovered herself in a moment, and tried to be kind and gracious, I felt the sting of it and saw that he felt it too, and consequently was not at all astonished when, after she had passed us, he turned and looked at me critically for the first time. But his way of showing his dissatisfaction gave me a shock it took me years to recover from. "'Take off that hat,' he cried, 
and when I had obeyed him he tore out the spray, which to my eyes had been its chief adornment, and threw it in some bushes nearby. Then he gave me back the hat, and asked for the silk neckerchief, which I had regarded as the glory of my bridal costume. Giving it to him I saw him put it in his pocket, and understanding now that he was trying to make me look more like the lady we had passed, I cried out passionately. It is not these things that make the difference, John, but my voice and my way of walking and speaking. Give me money and let me be educated, and then we will see if any other woman can draw your eyes away from me. But he had received a shock that made him cruel. You cannot make a silk purse out of a sow's ear, he sneered, and was silent all the rest of the way home. I was silent, too, for I never talk when I am angry but when we arrived in our own little room I confronted him. "'Are you going to say any more such cruel things to me?' I asked. "'For if you are, I should like you to say them now and be done with it.' He looked desperately angry, but there was yet a little love left in his heart for me, for he laughed after he had looked at me for a minute, and took me in his arms and said some fine things with which he had previously won my heart but not with the old fire and not with the old effect upon me. Yet my love had not grown cold, it had only changed from the unthinking stage to the thinking one, and I was quite in earnest when I said, I know I am not as pretty or as nice as the ladies you are accustomed to, but I have a heart that has never known any other passion than its love for you, and from such a heart you ought to expect a lady to grow, and there will. Only give me the chance, John, only let me learn to read and write. But he was in an incredulous state of mind, and it ended in his going away without making any arrangements for my education. He was bound for San Francisco, where he had business to transact, and he promised to be back in four weeks. But before the four weeks elapsed, he wrote me that it would be five, and later on that it would be six, and afterwards that it would be when he had finished a big piece of work he was engaged upon, and which would bring him a large amount of money. I believed him, and I doubted him at the same time, but I was not altogether sorry he delayed his return, for I had begun school on my own account, and was fast laying the foundation of a solid education. My means came from my father, who, now it was too late, saw the necessity of my improving myself. The amount of studying I did that first year was amazing, but it was nothing to what I went through the second, for my husband's letters had begun to fail me, and I was forced to work in order to drown grief and keep myself from despair. Finally no letters came at all, and when the second year was over, and I could at least express myself correctly, I woke to the realization that, so far as my husband was concerned, I had gone through all this labor for nothing, and that unless by some fortunate chance I could light upon some clue to his whereabouts in the great world beyond our little town, I would be likely to pass the remainder of my days in widowhood and desolation. My father dying at this time and leaving me a thousand dollars, I knew no better way of spending it than in the hopeless search I have just mentioned. Accordingly, after his burial, I started out on my travels, gaining experience with every mile. 
I had not been away a week before I realized what a folly I had indulged in, in ever hoping to see John Randolph back at my side. I saw the homes in which such men as he lived, and met in cars and on steamboats the kind of people with whom he must associate to be happy, and a gulf seemed to open between us, which even such love as mine would be powerless to bridge. But, though my hope thus sank in my breast, I did not lose my old ambition of making myself as worthy of him as circumstances would permit. I read only the best books, and I allowed myself to become acquainted with only the best people, and as I saw myself liked by such, the awkwardness of my manner gradually disappeared, and I began to feel that the day would come when I should be universally recognized as a lady. Meantime, I did not advance an iota in the object of my journey, and at last, with every expectation gone of ever seeing my husband again, I made my way to Toledo. Here I speedily found employment, and what was better still to one of my ambitious tendencies, an opportunity to add to the sum of my accomplishments a knowledge of French and music. The French I learned from the family I lived with, and the music from a professor in the same house whose love for his pet art was so great that he found it simple happiness to impart it to one so greedy for improvement as myself. Here, in course of time, I also learned typewriting, and it was for the purpose of seeking employment in this capacity that I finally came to New York. This was three months ago. I was in complete ignorance of the city when I entered it, and for a day or two I wandered to and fro, searching for a suitable lodging house. It was while I was on my way to Mrs. Desberger's that I saw advancing toward me a gentleman in whose air and manner I detected a resemblance to the husband who some five years since had deserted me. The shock was too much for my self-control. Quaking in every limb, I stood awaiting his approach, and when he came up to me and I saw by his startled recognition of me that it was indeed he, I gave a loud cry and threw myself upon his arm. The start he gave was nothing to the frightful expression which crossed his face at this encounter, but I thought both due to his surprise, though now I am convinced they had their origin in the deepest and worst emotions of which a man is capable. "'John, John!' I cried, and could say no more, for the agitations of five solitary, despairing years were choking me. But he was entirely voiceless, stricken, I have no doubt beyond any power of mine to realize. How could I dream that in consideration, power, and prestige he had advanced even more rapidly than myself, and that at this moment he was not only the idol of society, but on the verge of uniting himself to a woman, I will not say of marrying her, for marry her he could not while I lived who would make him the envied possessor of millions. Such fortune, such daring, yes, and such depravity, were beyond the reach of my imagination, and, while I thought his pleasure less than mine, I did not dream that my existence was a menace to all his hopes, and that during this moment of speechlessness he was sounding his nature for means to rid himself of me, even at the cost of my life. 
His first movement was to push me away, but I clung to him all the harder, at which his whole manner changed, and he began to make futile efforts to calm me and lead me away from the spot. Seeing that these attempts were unavailing, he turned pale and raised his arm up passionately, but speedily dropped it again, and casting glances this way and that, broke suddenly into a loud laugh, and became, as by the touch of a magician's wand, my old lover again. "'Why, Olive!' he cried. "'Why, Olive, is it you?' Did I say my name was Olive? Happily met, my dear. I did not know what I had been missing all these years, but now I know it was you. Will you come with me, or shall I go home with you?' "'I have no home,' said I. "'I have just come into town.' then i see but one alternative he smiled and what a power there was in his smile when he chose to exert it you must come to my apartments are you willing i am your wife i answered he had taken me on his arm by this time and the recoil he made at these words was quite perceptible but his face still smiled and i was too mad with joy to be critical and a very pretty and charming wife you have become, said he, drawing me on for a few steps. Suddenly he paused, and I felt the old shadow fall between us again. But your dress is very shabby, he remarked. It was not. It was not near as shabby as the linen duster he himself wore. Is that rain, he inquired, looking up as a drop or two fell. Yes, it is raining. Very well, let us go into this store we are coming to and buy a gossamer. That will cover up your gown. I cannot take you to my house dressed as you are now. Surprised, for I had thought my dress very neat and ladylike, but never dreaming of questioning his taste any more than in the old days in Michigan, I went with him into the shop he had pointed out and bought me a gossamer, for which he paid. When he had helped me put it on, and had tied my veil well over my face, he seemed more at ease, and gave me his arm quite cheerfully. Now, said he, you look well, but how about the time when you will have to take the gossamer off? I tell you what it is, my dear. You will have to refit yourself entirely before I shall be satisfied. And again I saw him cast about him that furtive and inquiring look, which would have awakened more surprise in me than it did, had I known that we were in a part of the city where he ran, but little chance of meeting any one he knew. This old duster I have on, he suddenly laughed, is a very appropriate companion to your gossamer. And though I did not agree with him, for my clothes were new and his old and shabby, I laughed also and never dreamed of evil. As this garment, which so disfigured him that morning, has been the occasion of much false speculation on the part of those whose business it was to inquire into the crime, with which it is in a most unhappy way connected, I may as well explain here and now why so fastidious a gentleman as Randolph Stone came to wear it. The gentleman called Howard Van Burnham was not the only person who visited the Van Burnham offices on the morning preceding the murder. Randolph Stone was there also, but he did not see the brothers, for finding them closeted together, he decided not to interrupt them. As he was a frequent visitor there, his presence created no remark, nor was his departure noted. 
Descending the stairs separating the offices from the street, he was about to leave the building, when he noticed that the clouds looked ominous. Being dressed for a luncheon with Miss Althorpe, he felt averse to getting wet, so he stepped back into the adjoining hall and began groping for an umbrella in a little closet under the stairs where he had once before found such an article. While doing this, he heard the younger Van Burnham descend and go out, and realizing that he could now see Franklin without difficulty, he was about to return upstairs when he heard that gentleman also come down and follow his brother into the street. His first impulse was to join him, but finding nothing but an old duster in the closet, he gave up this intention, and putting on this shabby but protecting garment, started for his apartments, little realizing into what a course of duplicity and crime it was destined to lead him. For to the wearing of this old duster on this especial morning, innocent as the occasion was, I attribute John Randolph's temptation to murder. Had he gone out without it, he would have taken his usual course up Broadway and never met me, or even if he had taken the same roundabout way to his apartments as that which led to our encounter, he would never have dared, in his ordinary fine dress, conspicuous as it made him, to have entered upon those measures, which, as he is clever enough to know, led to disgrace, if they do not end in a felon's cell. It was John Randolph then, or Randolph Stone, as he is pleased to call himself in New York, and not Franklin Van Burnham, who had doubtless proceeded in another direction, who came up to where Howard had stood, saw the keys he had dropped, and put them in his own pocket. It was as innocent in action as the donning of the duster, and yet it was fraught with the worst consequences to himself and to others. Being of the same height and complexion as Franklin Van Burnham, and both gentlemen wearing at that time a mustache, my husband shaved his off after the murder. The mistakes which arose out of this strange equipment were but natural. Seen from the rear or in the semi-darkness of a hotel office, they might look alike, though to me or to anyone studying them well, their faces are really very different. But to return, leading me through streets of which I knew nothing, he presently stopped before the entrance of a large hotel. I tell you what, Olive, said he, we had better go in here, take a room, and send for such things as you require to make you look like a lady. As I had no objection to anything which kept me at his side, I told him that whatever suited him suited me, and followed him quite eagerly into the office. I did not know then that this hotel was a second-rate one, not having had experience with the best. But if I had, I should not have wondered at his choice, for there was nothing in his appearance, as I have already intimated, or in his manners up to this point, to lead me to think he was one of the city's great swells, and that it was only in such an unfashionable house as this he would be likely to pass unrecognized. How, with his markedly handsome features and distinguished bearing, he managed to so carry himself as to look like a man of inferior breeding, I can no more explain than I can the singular change which took place in him when once he found himself in the midst of the crowd which lounged about this office. 
From a man to attract all eyes, he became at once a man to attract none, and slouched and looked so ordinary that I stared at him in astonishment, little thinking that he had assumed this manner as a disguise. Seeing me at a loss, he spoke up quite peremptorily. Let us keep our secret, Olive, till you can appear in the world full-fledged. And look here, darling, won't you go to the desk and ask for a room? I am no hand at any such business. Confounded at a proposition so unexpected, but too much under the spell of my feelings to dispute his wishes, I faltered out. But supposing they ask me to register? At which he gave me a look which recalled the old days in Michigan, and quietly sneered, Give them a fictitious name. You have learned to write by this time, have you not? Stung by his taunt, but more in love with him than ever, for his momentary display of passion had made him look both masterful and handsome, I went up to the desk to do his bidding. A room, said I, and when asked to write our names in the book that lay before me, I put down the first that suggested itself. I wrote with my gloves on, which was why the writing looked so queer that it was taken for a disguised hand. This done, he rejoined me, and we went upstairs, and I was too happy to be in his company again to wonder at his peculiarities or weigh the consequences of the implicit confidence I accorded him. I was desperately in love once more, and entered into every plan he proposed without a thought beyond the joyous present. He was so handsome without his hat, and when after some short delay he threw aside the duster, I felt myself for the first time in my life in the presence of a finished gentleman. Then his manner was so changed. He was so like his oldest and best self, so dangerously like what he was in those long vanished hours under the pines in my sand-swept home on the shores of Lake Michigan that he faltered at times and sank into strange spells of silence, which had something in them that made my breath come fitfully, did not awaken my apprehension, or rouse in me more than a passing curiosity. I thought he regretted the past, and when, after one such pause in our conversation, he drew out of his pocket a couple of keys tied together with a string, and surveyed the card attached to them with a strange look, easy enough to be understood by me now, I only laughed at his abstraction, and indulged him in a fresh caress to make him more mindful of my presence. These keys were the ones which Mrs. Van Burnham's husband had dropped, and which he had picked up before meeting me, and after he had put them back into his pocket, he became more talkative than before, and more systematically lover-like. I think he had not seen his way clearly until that moment, the dark and dreadful way which was to end, as he supposed, in my death. But I feared nothing, suspected nothing. Such deep and desperate wickedness as he was planning was beyond the wildest flight of my imagination. When he insisted upon sending for a complete set of clothing for me, and when at his dictation I wrote a list of the articles I wanted, I thought he was influenced by his wish as my husband to see me dressed in articles of his own buying. That it was all a plot to rob me of my identity could not strike such a mind as mine, 
and when the packages came and were received by him in the sly way already known to the public i saw nothing in his caution but a playful display of mystery that was to end in my romantic establishment in a home of love and luxury end of part one of chapter forty one